This episode of Harvey Brownstone Interviews is brought to you by the Harvey Brownstone Talk Show Blend Coffee. Available at HollywoodBlends.com. Everyone's saying it's the best coffee they've ever tasted. Why not give it a try and see for yourself? Hello, everyone. I'm Harvey Brownstone, and today's special guest is a beloved multi-award winning actress, director, and author who became a global superstar with her portrayal of Sue Ellen in the blockbuster TV series Dallas, for which she won numerous international awards and was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards, an Emmy Award, and four Soap Opera Digest Awards. But her career extends far beyond Dallas. On the big screen, she's appeared in many movies, including Dogs, Oscar, Star of Jaipur, Expecting Mary, The Flight of the Swan, Hidden Moon, Intuitions, and Wally's Will, which won her two Best Actress awards at the USA Film Festival and the North Hollywood Film Festival. And she starred in dozens of TV shows like Melrose Place, The Bold and the Beautiful, and Models, Inc., and many TV movies, including Murder in Peyton Place, Haywire, The Wild and the Free, Not in Front of the Children, Moment of Truth, Why My Daughter, Accidental Meeting, When the Cradle Falls, Perfect Match, and of course, the two Dallas TV movies, J.R. Returns and War of the Ewings. On the stage, our guests starred in the world premiere production in London of Terms of Endearment, and in the West End production of The Graduate, in which she starred on Broadway for a limited engagement. In 2014, she returned to the London stage to star in the Christmas pantomime Cinderella, playing the fairy godmother. She's also starred on stage in The Vagina Monologues, Agnes of God, and Love Letters. In 1982, she was named Woman of the Year by the Hollywood Radio and Television Society. In 2013, she was included in People Magazine's list of the most beautiful women in the world. And in 2015, she published her highly compelling, emotionally powerful and inspirational memoir entitled The Road to Happiness is Always Under Construction, which became an instant bestseller. The book chronicles our guest's amazing life journey through childhood illness, family trauma, and the many challenges of an ultimately triumphant career and fulfilling personal life, bringing her to a place of honesty, serenity, and joy. And I'm very excited to announce that on December the 2nd, our guest's highly anticipated brand new TV movie entitled Ladies of the 80s, A Diva's Christmas, will be premiering on the Lifetime channel. This is a delicious comedy in which our guest co-stars with Lonnie Anderson, Morgan Fairchild, Donna Mills, and Nicolette Sheridan, who play five glamorous soap opera queens who reunite to shoot the final Christmas episode of their long-running TV series. And if all of that weren't enough, our guest is also a highly respected philanthropist. She's been very involved with the Best Buddies program for people with intellectual challenges, as well as Meals on Wheels and the Force for Good Foundation. And for 10 years, from 1997 to 2007, she served as a United Nations Goodwill Ambassador to promote women's rights and the health of women and children. I'm delighted and deeply honored to welcome the incomparable Linda Gray to our show. Ms. Gray, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. And I'm exhausted hearing the bio. <laughs> like, wow, it was a lot. You don't look exhausted. You look great. I feel great. That's the key for me is feel, how do you feel? You know, and going on, I thought, did I do all of that? <laughs> you sure did. 
Now, when you were 20 years old, a magazine editor rejected you as a model and said that perhaps one day you might shape into something. How did you deal with that kind of rejection and develop the resilience to keep believing in yourself? Well, it was it was very funny because I had entered myself into the Glamour magazine, Glamour Girl contest or something. I sent in a photograph and my rejection letter was, you know, I one day if I did something with my hair and my makeup, etc. So I was crushed. I thought, darn, this is not acceptable. And then I was ready to wad it up and throw it in the trash. And my inner intuition said, it's only one person's opinion. And let's save that letter. So for me, feisty little me at 20, I thought, you know, who is this person to tell me that? And I'm just going to go prove to her that I'm, I can just do fine. Thank you very much. So when I wrote the book, <laughs> I wrote my book. They, they saw the letter, which is framed on my desk to this day. Because I thought one person's rejection, there will be several more, and let's deal with life. So we called her. We called the editor of Glamour Magazine, and we said, we would like to publish your rejection letter in my book. And she was appalled. We found her, and she said, oh, I would never have written anything like that. And we smiled sweetly. <laughs> and and we put it in the book. And uh, it was like, you know, we all, especially in our industry, we get rejected all the time. And it just builds character, I think. It's like, okay, that's your opinion. Watch this. I love that. And I think there's such an instructive lesson in there for everybody, even if you're not in show business. Now, in 1977, you were cast as the first transgender character on American television. You played fashion model Linda Merkland in the TV series All That Glitters. Did you realize at the time that this was something historic? I didn't. I was so excited to work with Norman Lear. That was the key for me. And, and so I, he was a trailblazer. Talk about forward thinking. and. I, I just loved him. I loved the concept. I loved the idea. And he was wonderful uh, to me because I said, Norman, I love this character, uh, but I don't know anything about transgender. I don't know. And that's 1977. It's not today. It was 1977. So he flew somebody down a woman that I had been a man, and we spent the day together, locked up, not literally, but together in a room. And I had tons of questions because I was going to portray her. And she had tons of questions for me. So we got along great. And I understood that that was her life. And she was in the wrong body and on and on. And I went on to play her and, we, you know, we, we we became friends. So that's what it was. It was a learning and a great, a great expansion. It's like we have so little knowledge about another person's life, what they've been through. What is their history? How did they get here? What is their life like now? So I got such an education from her, and uh, it was it was beyond wonderful just to have an expanded, not judgmental at all, 
was like, okay, that's who you are. That's what you did. That's what you had to do for survival. And uh, it was great. And I learned a lot. Well, it's not one of those appearances that you're asked about very often. But to me, I felt it was really a groundbreaking performance. Now, of course, you've been identified so strongly with the character of Sue Ellen Ewing for so many years, the long-suffering alcoholic wife of J.R. Are there any similarities at all between Sue Ellen and the real Linda Gray? There's, there's a, a similarity in that we both loved clothes. She, I was. I just loved her. The wardrobe. I loved her feistiness. My mother was an alcoholic, and so the interesting thing for me and for my mother was when I got Dallas. She was over one day, and I handed her a stack of like the first five scripts, and I said, "Mom, would you like to read these?" And she did. And her eyes just got very big. And she then she then became sober. She went to the Betty Ford Clinic. And she, she it was amazing for both of us because I sat there with her uh, and, and she realized that she uh, had a problem. And that I was going to portray, not her, but uh, any woman, anybody out there who had an, uh, an addiction to something, drugs, alcohol, whatever, food. So she realized it and she saw it and she realized her daughter was going to be playing this person. And she got sober. And I'm so, I was so proud of her. Well, that's really quite amazing. And it's, it's, it's stunning how her destiny led her to that decision based on a career opportunity for you. It's And I've always felt that Sue Ellen was one of the most interesting female characters on television in the 80s because she had a complicated personality. It was layered and it was complex and her relationships were complicated. And of course, there was the alcoholism. Were you happy with the way the writers developed your character as the show progressed? Oh, I was because... The thing I loved about Dallas, outside of the friendships, was the fact that we exposed, now we're, we're talking back in 1978 when we began, we exposed people with addiction. Miss Ellie had a bat- mastectomy. These were, these were t- we exposed gay, you know, the gays. We, we exposed so many things that were kept under the rug Nobody talks about that. Oh, no, don't talk about that. Mm-mm. No, we don't talk about that because we we just don't. And we'll talk about that later. Uh, it was all that, you know, we, we are not seen and we're seen and not heard, that kind of thing. So everything was suppressed. And when Dallas came out, it was like, bam, let's go. Let's bring all these, these subjects uh, and topics that are unspoken. And how they help people, I cannot tell you, Harvey, the amount of people that, of the letters and now the texts and all those things that happened, people didn't know that they had an addiction. Oh, my God, it's this. Or that they didn't know they were gay and out it came. And their lives improved. And they were so excited that these things were finally 
brought to the forefront. There were 800 numbers that you could call. And what an, what an expensive way to live. So I was very proud of what they did, you know, and we just blew it out bigger than life. And that's what I loved. Well, at one point during your time on Dallas, I recall you saying that you told the producers that you felt Sue Ellen had been doing too much drinking and having too many affairs and you wanted her to stop. Was that because you were kind of getting bored with the character? It wasn't that I was becoming bored, although it was enough already. <laughs> it was the fact that it, the time, it was a different time. It was becoming a different time. And I needed Sue Ellen to stand up and face JR, face the alcoholism, face all these affairs. She was just running away and, and having, she was kind of like, this loose cannon out there. And she needed to stop and face her demons and move on to a higher level in life where she could really be toe-to-toe with J.R. Ewing, not take it anymore. And that's what was happening in society for women everywhere. They weren't, that they were madder than hell and they weren't going to take it anymore. And I thought, I can't keep playing this one character all the time, one note you know, alcoholism affairs, blah, blah, blah. It it not only bored me as a as an actor, but it was boring me as as in society that I needed to move forward like women were doing at that time. That's what it was. Well, when the writers did move in the direction of having Sue Ellen stop drinking, they took her character down into the depths of despair. And I think that was when you did some of your finest acting on the show, don't you think? Thank you, Harvey. Thank you for recognizing that. Yes, because they told me, I said, I want to stop the drinking and blah, blah, blah. And so they said, okay, all right, but we're going to take you down. And I said, how far down? <laughs> and they said, we got to go down to the gutter. we got to go. I said, okay, because that's honestly what alcoholics have to do. They have to hit rock bottom. And Sue Ellen had to be the forerunner for this. So, I, you know, I ended up drinking alcohol in, from a bag in with a bag lady in, in an alley. And I was pretty far down. But I said, bring it on. Let's go. And, you know, I thought it was appropriate because it had to show the audience exactly what happens. And if you don't go down that far and admit this is a problem, this is an addiction, you will, you know, ruin your life. I felt that if if we didn't express it in that way, such a firm, take a stand in this way, that it it wouldn't work and people would just go, oh, that's fluffy and that's silly and I'm an addict and I have to take deal with it. Anyway, they took me down and I loved it. I loved it. And of course, as an actor, I, I love just blowing it out full speed. And another trivia thing was that Sue Ellen took two hours in hair and makeup, one hour, one hour. And when I got to play the the alcoholic in the in the alley, it was twenty minutes. They goopy stuff in my hair, some gel stuff, and then they did kind of one of these. 
And they said, you're ready? I said, yes. So that was a bonus. <laughs> Selfishly, I loved it. Well, I hope you take a lot of gratification from the fact that you helped so many women draw strength from your portrayal of Sue Ellen. You really, that's great karma for you, Miss Gray, because you helped people. You know, you weren't just entertaining the audience. You helped a lot of people. I know women who've told me that you presented a mirror for them in their own lives. That's quite something for an actor to do. Well, you know, that's what we do. That's our job. I feel very responsible for, you know, it isn't like I'm an actor, uh, but there's a responsibility connected to that. That is, I take very seriously. That's that's important for me. And then how it, how it reflected and reverberated out into the uh, global community was a bonus. It's like, okay, thank you. Thank you for letting me expose uh, these things that needed to be exposed. It was a blessing, a gift for me. Now, Dallas was the number one show on television for 11 years. And then the yeah. show returned in 2012 and ran for three seasons. Did you have any apprehension about coming back to the show after 20 years? You know, I did. Because first of all, it was a gift, another gift that Patrick and Larry and I got to work together again. And we were like five-year-olds. So we were very excited to get that invitation. Then I thought, well, wait a minute. Number one, Sue Ellen cannot drink. And number two, I felt that she had to come back 20 years later. She had to come back on par with J.R. Ewing. She knew all of his dirty little tricks. She knew all the people that helped him with his dirty little tricks. She knew where all the bodies were buried. She knew so much that I thought if she was in a power place to call him out on all his dirty little deals, that it would be fabulous. So I said, why doesn't she run for governor? And so they thought about it and they said, okay, let's have her run for governor. So they prepared everything. We got ready to shoot. And I thought, well, this is great because she's got, she's got some goods on him. So what happened was we started filming and Sue Ellen was running for governor and they had all the banners and the things and the things. And then, so she was in this campaign mode and then they came to me one day and they said, she has to lose. I said, what do you mean she has to lose? This is such a great campaign. It's fabulous. And she said, because the capital of Texas is in Austin. That's where you'll be. The name of the show is called Dallas. So you have to lose. And I thought, oh, damn. And so what happened was I said, okay, if I have to lose, let's make it painless. Let's make it like pulling a Band-Aid off. Let's do it quickly and painlessly. And so I had to lose. Uh, but I thought it was a great beginning for that 
the, the new reboot season. And, uh, I, you know, they agreed. But we couldn't, they couldn't fly me back from Austin. It couldn't have, it was too complicated. Well, I love that story arc. The, the original Dallas didn't have a lot of women writers, but the new Dallas did have more women writers. Did that make a difference for the Sue Ellen character? I think so. She was very, uh, our writer producer was Cynthia Cidre. She was amazing. And she, she listened, she understood. She was so amazing because she was open and she understood the woman. She understood the woman's plight in this crazy world of ours. And she got it. So she was a joy to work with. She understood. She was successful. And she she just knew how to make it happen for women. You know, there was something really magical about your scenes with Larry Hagman. It, it's not just the on-screen chemistry between you. It, but it just didn't feel like you were acting opposite each other. It felt more like you were sparring partners. Does that make any sense? It does. You know, the chemistry was not to be denied because we felt it. And sometimes when we were in the midst of a scene, it was like surreal because there were sparks and I never knew what he was going to do. And he never knew what I was going to do. So in that, in that momentum was the sparks and the magic and the chemistry. Those were, you know, it was like we'd finish a scene and it would, it was kind of shocking, like what happened to both of us. It was so uh, charismatic. That's the magic of it all. Now, as I said in my introduction, you've made some really terrific TV movies, and a lot of those movies dealt with very important social issues. I'll give you some examples. In Moment of Truth, Broken Pledges, you dealt with the issue of hazing in college fraternities. In Not in Front of My Children, you played a mother in a bitter child custody dispute. You also dealt with a custody battle involving grandparents in To My Daughter with Love. In When the Cradle Falls, you dealt with the trafficking of babies and illegal adoptions. And Expecting Mary dealt with teen pregnancy. Do you look for roles that give you an opportunity to advance the cause of social justice? You know, I think they look for me. I think that's what happens. I, I don't, you know, I, I just find those roles much more interesting. Than, than a lot of the scripts I was receiving at that time. I, I'm fascinated and intrigued and drawn to interesting women, Sue Ellen. And then I played, you know, in Anne Bancroft's role in, in The Graduate. These are interesting women. These are forward-moving women that didn't, that didn't just hang out and... and the status quo of, of it all. It was so different, so interesting. So when these different scripts came to me that had social issues come in, I was right on them because I thought people need to hear about this. They need to hear about college hazing. They need to hear about, you know, all of the things that uh, that I could bring out and then give it some, give it some soul and some heart and have people pay attention. A lot of people don't pay attention to life. They just kind of go through life. These are issues that need addressing. 
just like Dallas, just like the alcoholism and in uh, breast cancer and just like all of that, we need, to, I feel strongly that we need to pay attention instead of just drifting along and going, well, that's life. It's made you an actress that has a certain gravitas because of this body of work. In 2006, you were in a beautiful movie called Reflections of a Life, in which you played the best friend of a woman undergoing treatment for breast cancer. That must have been so difficult for you after what you went through when you lost your own sister, Betty, in 1989. It was, you know, and these are are life issues that for me, it's, Everybody goes is going through something, and when those things, those issues are addressed, you you expand your own life. It's like let's find out, let's put ourselves in the other person's shoes. How does that feel? How do you feel? How if it hit home? And unfortunately, those things hit home really hard for me, really personally, and. You know, it's not easy. It, it not when somebody has cancer of any sort. It's not easy because the whole family goes through it. It's not just one person isolated. It's the it, it involves the entire family, and educates everybody. So you're not just hopefully you're not alone in your in in going through it alone. That you've got a support system. But the support system needs to know. It's like when my sister had uh, uh, contracted breast cancer, her husband started doing marathons. He was literally not educated what you do. So he just started running and running away from the issue. He didn't know what to do. He wasn't told by anybody. You stay here and you do this and you help her, you get her support. You think that comes naturally. But it doesn't to most people. So my um, brother-in-law didn't know what to do. So he just was like, oh, well, I better, I have to go marathon run. My sister needed him with her. He didn't know that. And, and nobody had the, the vocabulary, the tools, the just the major information that's needed to be a support system. Well, I love the fact that you're not just an actor, you're also an educator. Now, you directed at least one episode of Dallas, and you also directed the stage play Murder in the First. Would you like to do more directing? You know, I don't know. I I really enjoyed the process. It was fascinating to me. It it, It was expanding to me, and I did love it. And I've taken a break from it just because life gets in the way sometimes. And so I, you know, I've taken a break, but I really would, I'm probably going back to refresh my education and get back in it a little bit because there's there's so many stories that are begging to be told, you know, that are, that aren't, uh, aren't told right now. So maybe I'll jump in there again. So let's talk about your new movie, Ladies of the 80s, A Diva's Christmas. I could not get the network to give me an advanced copy so I could view it. So can you tell our audience a little bit of of what you have in store for us? (laughs) Well, it's 
first of all, it's so much fun. It's it's a Christmas movie by Lifetime. And what it is, it's a, it's a group of women. There's five of us. Morgan Fairchild, Donna Mills, Nicolette Sheridan, Lonnie Anderson, and me. And we're all soap opera stars. And we're coming together yet again, kind of a reunion, to to do our last kind of a Christmas uh, celebration. Last time we're all together. So it, it's chaotic. It's fabulous. It's fun. Everybody looks wonderful. I don't look so good <laughs> because I'm playing a different character. <laughs> and, and we just, for, for us, the five of us to reminisce and tell great stories of working together in the 80s, I didn't really work with any of them. Maybe teeny bit with uh, Morgan in the, in the early 70s. But we just giggled and laughed and had so much fun. And I play a little bit. She's a little bit of a hippie, a little bit of an older hippie. <laughs> and she's so cute and so adorable and just tries to keep everybody at peace, you know, peace, love. And and that's who she is. The other ones are very glamorous and very this and very that. I just want to be everybody be happy. <laughs> and that's it. It's so much fun. You'll love it. Oh, I know I'm going to love it. And the atmosphere on the set must have been hilarious. It was hilarious. And and again, to, to reiterate, it was so much fun. And just a, you know, just a group of us that... We're around the same time frame doing what we do, we did best, you know, being so proper stars kind of thing. And and then just to hang out and and reminisce and have the best time. It was it was like a slumber party for all of us. Well, you know, this might sound crazy, but do you think there might be a chance that the movie might turn into a TV series? Because I I can visualize this. Harvey, you look good. You're good. You're good. We talked about, I mean, uh, all of us have no say in that, but, uh, you know, there's there's a possibility we could do another one, kind of like Book Club, Book Club did with, with the girls. And then they did another one when they went to Italy, and it was fabulous. But we could do another one. I don't know about a series. Who knows? I think at this stage in our lives, you just, you're open to whatever may happen. Well, would you ever consider returning to a full-time TV series? That's a, that's a tough call, honestly. Uh, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and we're all open to a lot of work. We don't care. We never uh, shirk to work. I don't know. I don't know. It'd be fun to try it. Why not? Well, when we had Mariette Hartley on our show a few weeks ago, she talked about how difficult it is for veteran stars, especially women, to find good roles in movies and on TV, unless you're Meryl Streep or Helen Mirren or Judi Dench. Do you agree with that? I agree. I do. I do. Because they want to, you know, dispose of you when you're what you're supposed to be, what, 40, they get rid of you. And look at all of us. <laughs> We're doing great. <laughs> We're like double that age. And We're still hanging in and working and having fun. So I think that nobody should tell you when, uh, when you know, you can't work or you can't do this or you're, you're too old or whatever. All that's nonsense to me. 
It's like, no, pay attention. Pay attention to life and the wisdom and the fun that women have. It's like Golden Girls. I think one of our writers wrote for Golden Girls. And, you know, we have stuff to give. We have magic. We've got wisdom. And we're fun and we're feisty and we're fabulous. Oh, absolutely. And I think the book club movies that you mentioned are proof that there is an audience. There is a niche market for you and for your colleagues. So this is exciting. It's an exciting time for you. I think so. I mean, I've never let go of the fact, you know, I never even focus on the fact that, oh my God, you're too old. I never, that doesn't even come into my consciousness. It's like, for what? You know, I went just in Spain in May of this year. I walked a hundred miles doing the Camino de Santiago. 100 miles at my age. I'm like, who the hell told me I can't? <laughs> it's like, oh, no, it's like that lady back when I was 20 telling me that if I hang in, maybe I'll turn into something. Huh, are you kidding? That was her, her idea and her recommendation and her rejection. So it's like, no, this is my life and I'm going to do what I want to. <laughs> Love it. Well, that's very, very inspirational. And it's exactly what we all aspire to do as we keep going in life. Now, when you look back at your career and all the amazing people you've worked with, all the projects you've worked on, are you able to identify one special experience that was the most personally satisfying for you? Yes. You know, it, I, I keep coming back to doubts because it was many years we we were together many many years and many messages were received by the by the global audience that we had that was fulfilling to me to have people tap into maybe their addictions or their or, or if they're gay or they're you know have breast cancer or what just to be the voice of some of those things made me very proud. I, I was honestly very proud to be part of it. And those things stay with you forever. I thought, wow, isn't this beautiful that I could be speaking about these things bigger than life? Yes, they were bigger than life. But life is bigger than life to me. It's like, you know, we got one shot at this. Make it, make it the best you can. And I feel that Dallas sort of it infused itself and and tapped in to the most beautiful part of everybody's life that opened their eyes and their heart to be the better person, to be the best them that they could be. And that impact impacted me hugely. It's an amazing legacy. I want to tell our viewers that you can learn more about Linda Gray by going to her official website, lindagrayofficial.com. Well, Linda, I only have one more question for you. Are you ready? I'm, I guess so. Let's go. Is it true that the legs that we see in the movie The Graduate are actually not Anne Bancroft's, but yours? They're mine. They're mine. I was paid $25. And so that ends up $12.50 per leg. 
<laughs> and yes, it was my leg. Yes. And a, f- a dear photographer friend of mine, that was when I was like, well, that was in the 60s that film came out. And so uh, he called me and asked if he could take photographs of my legs. I thought, well, that's an odd request, but sure. And so I did it, did the stockings, said goodbye. I think it took an hour. Dustin was not there and Bancroft was not there. And they just put those little legs on the poster and there you go. Well, now the whole world knows. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think it, the poster hung in, in dorms across the planet. <laughs> I have to smile and say, okay, whatever. <laughs> But it's so cool that you got to do The Graduate on stage in the West End, right? So you came full circle. That's kind of karmic, too. Uh, It it was so bizarre when that happened because, I mean, nobody had any idea. And and then they brought up the the poster and I thought, yeah, I did that. But that's been a long time ago. So anyway, I did. I came full circle, loved playing you know, Mrs. Robinson, what a character she was. So between Sue Ellen Ewing and Mrs. Robinson and Fairy Godmother, <laughs> it's kind of a, a, a romp. I've had the best time. Well, Ms. Linda Gray, it's been such a pleasure meeting you and having this chance to chat with you about your amazing life and career. You're such an inspiration on so many levels. Your book is life-altering. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to appear on our show. Harvey, it's honestly my pleasure. I've heard beautiful things about you, and uh, it was a pleasure to be on your show, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so, so much, and please come back anytime. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I would love to, honestly. Thank you. Our guest has been the incomparable Linda Gray, whose new movie entitled Ladies of the 80s, A Diva's Christmas is premiering on the Lifetime channel on December the 2nd. My name is Harvey Brownstone. Thank you to my producer, Steve Silver, my director of programming, Deborah Batsafin, my production assistant, Rosa Puzo, and my entire team at the XPTV1 network in the UK. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for watching. Be sure to check out all the great interviews on the Harvey Brownstone Interviews YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when new videos are posted.